You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. There is no denying that the use of crystals to ensure health and wellness is ancient, as the modern purveyors of crystal healing will surely tell you. What they won't tell you is that their use today differs fundamentally from their use in the past. Yes, crystals were used, as were almost every other precious stone, in the form of amulets worn for protection and good fortune in ancient Greece and Egypt. Different minerals were believed to have different uses or affect us in different ways. And as we have seen with all lore associated with magic and alchemy, these beliefs persisted, crossed cultural barriers, and evolved through the years into the Middle Ages when the medicinal and magical properties of crystals and other minerals were cataloged in medical papyri and grimoires. But the use of crystals by New Age gurus today really is not based on historical practices which fell out of favor in the 17th century as the medicinal powers attributed to crystals began to be attributed instead to the Christian God and his angels. New Age crystal healing really was invented in the 1980s, mostly attributed to the work of Katrina Raphael, who took what had always been a folk tradition that relied on the placebo effect and transformed it into a modern pseudoscience with an elaborate mythos behind it. According to her, the quote-unquote science of crystal healing originated in Atlantis, which as so many have claimed through the ages, was a technologically advanced civilization that, according to Raphael and the New Age movement, used crystals for telepathic purposes. She claims to possess and teach the supposedly Atlantean art of arranging crystals on the body in such a way that they activate the chakras, allowing one to access deeper levels of consciousness that enable self-healing. And of course, she sells the crystals that are needed. Crystals have become a billion-dollar industry since the advent of the New Age movement, and the price can really be hiked if the crystal is claimed to be from Atlantis. Considering this phenomenon and subculture, it is perhaps unsurprising that the most famous and fabled of all crystal artifacts, the crystal skulls that appeared in the possession of Mesoamerican antiquities dealers between the 1870s and the 1930s, 
would eventually be claimed to have come from Atlantis and have the ability to heal or to kill, to reveal the past or the future. But even dismissing these claims out of hand, the simple claim that these crystal skulls are genuine pre-Columbian Mesoamerican artifacts cannot be credited. Thus, these hoax objects have a false history that has since been encircled by further false claims and pseudo-history, making them a perfect topic for this podcast. This is Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and I've come here with receipts to look into the forging of the crystal skulls. Before we start, I want to thank my new patrons, Nathaniel Islas, Nicholas Senkel, and Caroline Lavelle. And thanks to Matthew Freeman for his generous one-time donation on Venmo. Thanks so much to all my patrons. If you pledge on Patreon, you can get ad-free and exclusive episodes. Since I started releasing these patron minisodes, I've always done at least once a month, but for years now, I've been able to always release something exclusive between each episode, effectively making this a weekly podcast for patrons. For example, after my episode on Lost Cities of Gold, I told the crazy true story of the fake story that inspired the sunken city of Akator in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And after my episode on the Fountain of Youth, I released an exclusive minisode going more in-depth on the legend of Amazon warrior women and the archaeological discoveries suggesting there may have been some factual basis to the myth. Patron feeds also get episodes early, and as I said, their episodes are not interrupted by advertisements or these Patreon pitches after the cold open. So visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness and support the show. Or you can support the show by making a one-time donation at historicalblindness.com slash donate or at the PayPal link in the show notes or on Venmo at historicalblindness. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. As that by now familiar adventure theme suggests, this is another of my episodes on the lore of the MacGuffins featured in Indiana Jones films. As obviously the fourth film, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, featured a crystal skull as its main MacGuffin. Unlike some of the preceding films, which actually seemed well-read in the lore they explored, this one just mentions that Indy was, quote, obsessed with the Mitchell Hedges skull, end quote, in college. And that's about it. The crystal skull in the film is not claimed to be one of the known crystal skulls and is shaped differently to look like an elongated skull, thus to connect with Peruvian skull modification and then, of course, to aliens. It might at first seem unrealistic to suggest that an archaeology student would be obsessed with the crystal skull, knowing as we do today that all of them were fakes, but that's not really accurate. When the aforementioned Mitchell Hedges skull came to the attention of the scholarly community in the 1930s, since it corresponded with another crystal skull in the possession of the British Museum, it actually did generate some interest. The timeline doesn't really work, though, since the watershed moment 
a major article in the anthropology journal Man, did not come until 1936, at which time Indy was already a professor and international relic hunter, not a student at University of Chicago. But it's close enough for jazz, and indeed, the Crystal Skulls did interest some in the scholarly community at first, as they were at the time preoccupied with craniometry. But more so, they interested the general public, especially in France, where these crystal skulls seem to have first appeared. In mid to late 19th century Europe, there was a real market for trinkets symbolic of death, sold as mementos mori, kept to remind one of the inevitability of death. And in France in particular, a burgeoning industry of macabre art was booming. Stereoscopic cards were becoming more and more popular at the time. These were pairs of nearly identical photographs or prints that appeared three-dimensional when viewed in a stereoscope. Think of the viewfinder toys of your youth if you grew up in the 80s. Increasingly popular in France was a style of stereoscope card called Diableries, in which sculptures of devils and skeletons, often making satirical commentary on the corruption of Napoleon III and his court, came to life with special effects like a red glow in the eyes of skulls when the lighting was right. Amplifying this was the French interest in Mexican culture, occasioned by Louis Napoleon's invasion of the country and installment of Austrian Archduke Maximilian von Habsburg as its emperor. Anyone boasting even a passing familiarity with Mesoamerican cultures must be aware of the depiction of skeletons and skulls in their art, going all the way back to the Aztecs. The Spanish tried to suppress skull art as pagan, but it remains common in the culture today in syncretistic coexistence with Catholic traditions. When crystal skulls began to be sold in France in the latter half of the 19th century, claimed to be Mesoamerican artifacts, they appealed to the European taste for the macabre as well as for the exotic. These first crystal skulls were quite small, perhaps an inch high, and they each had a hole drilled vertically through them from the top of the skull downward, such that they could be worn like a bead. According to my principal source, the extensive work of Jane McLaren Walsh on this subject, one of the first such crystal skulls was acquired in Mexico by a British banker sometime in the 1850s and then two more were displayed in the Exposition Universelle in Paris in 1867. A fourth was purchased in 1874 by the National Museum, and a fifth in 1880. The Smithsonian purchased one from Mexico in 1886. There should have been more caution about the provenance and authenticity of these small crystal skull beads from the start, however because there was nothing like them in Mesoamerican art. As it turns out, it was exceedingly rare to find quartz artifacts, at least in controlled archaeological digs, whose finds can be trusted to be genuine. In fact, the sole piece of carved crystal known to have ever been discovered in a pre-Columbian Mesoamerican dig at Monte Alban in southern Mexico was a crystal goblet 
whose rough tool marks indicate the inability of Mesoamerican artists working with stone tools to achieve the kinds of workmanship we see in pretty much all crystal skulls. Any other Mesoamerican artifacts made of crystal are simply small ornaments like beads. In fact, the Smithsonian's crystal skull bead was determined in the 1950s to have been carved using a modern lapidary wheel, making it a definite fake, though the hole drilled through it may have been accomplished using more rudimentary tools. This raised the possibility that these small crystal skulls were genuine Mesoamerican crystal beads that had been altered using modern tools in order to make them appeal to European buyers. Indeed, an 18th century South American painting of Saint Teresa of Avila depicts her wearing just such a skull charm on her rosary. It has been suggested that these skull beads, like the crucifix, may have represented a reminder of Christ's passion, which occurred on Golgotha, the hill on which he was crucified, whose name meant place of the skull. This would suggest yet another older market for such an artifact, giving further reason for their manufacture. But if these first crystal skulls were manufactured in the 19th century, or if they were simply 18th century Spanish religious baubles misrepresented as ancient Mesoamerican artifacts, who was responsible for them? As it turns out, one man can be connected, at least circumstantially, to all of them. The two skulls exhibited in Paris at the Exhibition Universelle in 1867 were both from the collection of a French antiquities dealer who served as the official archaeologist of Emperor Maximilian in Mexico, where all the rest of the similar crystal skull beads had been sold to collectors. And this man, Eugene Boban, would later be tied to the emergence of the first life-size crystal skulls. Boban had left Paris for the Americas at 19 years old, hoping to avoid Napoleon III's draft and to strike gold in California. Unsuccessful in the gold fields, he came to Mexico City in 1857 and found a new way to strike it rich. After learning Spanish and the indigenous language of Nahuatl, he reinvented himself as an antiquities trader, doing a brisk business selling Aztec artifacts to tourists. About 20 years later, a Smithsonian archaeologist who visited the city warned his fellow scholars about the shops on every corner selling fake artifacts. It was this burgeoning trade in spurious antiquities that Boban helped to spearhead. When, after the Civil War, the Zapotec native Benito Juarez became president and began dismantling the Catholic churches that had been built on top of Aztec temples, Boban benefited by acquiring a great deal of Spanish artifacts and art. Then, when Louis Napoleon invaded and established Maximilian as the Mexican emperor, he benefited again, becoming the, quote, antiquarian to the emperor, end quote, and amassing a large collection of pagan artifacts. It was Napoleon III's Commission Scientifique that sent his collection to Paris to be exhibited in 1867. And two years later, Boban went there himself, hoping to sell his collection and finally get rich. He opened a curio shop 
called Antiquit Mexican. During his time there, he became a source for real skulls, which he sold and donated to anthropologists and anatomists. Perhaps having already observed the interest in small crystal skull baubles and knowing the market for life-size skulls, he seems to have put the two together when he began exhibiting and offering for sale ever larger crystal skulls. In 1878, he sold a collection of small crystal skulls and one grapefruit-sized skull, which also had a hole drilled through it like all the others. Then, in 1881, he began to display a life-size crystal skull with no hole drilled in it. These skulls came into his possession while he was in France, so either he had a pipeline direct from Mexico, where artifacts unlike any others ever seen before were promptly shipped to his antiquities shop, or he somehow found and purchased these artifacts from another dealer or a forger whose name he never revealed or he simply made them himself. Even at the time, there was suspicion about them. When his larger crystal skulls were exhibited publicly in Paris, they were displayed with the caveat that, quote, the authenticity appears doubtful, end quote. Unable to sell his life-size crystal skull, Boban returned with it to Mexico and began asserting it was a genuine Aztec artifact that had been discovered in a dig at Veracruz and attempting to sell it to the National Museum of Mexico. When the provenance and authenticity of the skull were challenged before its sale to the museum and Boban accused of fraud, he hastily took his collection and fled to New York, where he thereafter managed to sell his crystal skull to Tiffany and company for an exorbitant price. About 10 years later, Tiffany's sold it to the British Museum, where for a long time, it was displayed alongside genuine pre-Columbian Mesoamerican artifacts, as if it were authentic. Cut to about 50 years later, in 1943, when a man named Frederick Mitchell Hedges bid 400 pounds in a Sotheby's auction to acquire another crystal skull. This one was different from Boban's skull in that it was more finely polished, more anatomically realistic, and the jaw was of a separate piece, removable from the rest of the skull. Otherwise, though, it was of almost the exact same shape, which fact had garnered interest in the object years earlier when the anthropological journal Man published a 1936 article consisting of a morphological comparison of the Boban skull in the British Museum and this new skull, which the article indicated was in the possession of one Sidney Burney. After Mitchell Hedges obtained the skull, he immediately began making unsupported claims about its age and the method by which it was made, saying in a letter to his brother that, quote, Scientists put the date at pre-1800 BC, and they estimate it took five generations, passing from father to son, to complete." End quote. Mitchell Hedges kept this crystal skull in his possession for the next 16 years, until his death in 1959, and thereafter it passed into the possession of his adopted daughter, Anna Mitchell Hedges. Since her death in 2007, it has been in the care of her widower, Bill Homan. 
The story of the Mitchell Hedges skull is not one of dubious provenance. We know very little about where it came from. It apparently came into Sidney Burney's possession in 1933 from an undisclosed source. Burney was a London art dealer. It makes sense that he would buy the object and then approach museums with his find in order to ascertain its potential worth, afterward putting it up for auction to the highest bidder. We have no reason to think he forged the item himself, but we do have good reason to suspect that it may have come from the same source as Boban's skull, since analysis indicates they were carved according to the exact dimensions of the same skull. Whether Boban fabricated both of them or both were carved by some unknown forger or the latter copied from the former somehow, we may never know. The story of the Mitchell Hedges skull is rather more interesting in the way that it gathered myth and legend through the years, like a snowball growing as it tumbles down a snowy slope, false claims accreting as it passed through the decades and through the hands of those who sought to profit from it. And it all began with Mitchell Hedges himself, whose life story should have demonstrated his lack of credibility from the start. Now for a brief intermission. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find yourself captivated by the inexplicable, entranced by enigmas, and tantalized by the unknown? We are Shane and Josh Waters, brothers who will weave you through tales that have mystified us for years. From haunted hotels to inexplicable disappearances. Our episodes offer you a panoramic view of the world's greatest mysteries, leaving no stone unturned, no clue unnoticed. With a gripping narrative, we invite you to join us on a journey into realms of the unexplained. We're unraveling the mysteries that have perplexed humanity for ages. So, armchair detectives, curious minds, and seekers of the strange, it's time to put on your headphones and dim the lights. Dive into the uncanny world of the Mystery Inc. podcast and prepare for a journey into the unknown that you'll never forget. And remember, some mysteries are better left unsolved, but not unexplored. Hello. I'm Peter Laws, the host of the hit podcast Frightful, which offers very scary true stories. But as I research that show, I keep finding other true tales that aren't so terrifying and yet are fascinating and often deeply moving. That's why I launched a second podcast called Our Curious Past, telling forgotten incidents from history told in immersive audio with music, sound effects, and on-location recording. For example, you can join me on location in an underground nuclear bunker in England as I learned how Britain prepared for the potential of war in the 1980s. I loved recording on location in Transylvania to uncover the history of this beautiful and spooky land beyond the forest 
and I was particularly touched by the big response to my episode on the Nazi massacre of Urhador Suglin, an entire French village that was invaded by the Nazis in 1944. To be honest, it was sometimes hard to narrate that without breaking into tears. So why not join me, Peter Laws, by searching our curious past in podcast apps? Because, you know, sometimes it's the unique moments from another person's yesterday that helps us understand ourselves today. Now, back to the show. Frederick Mitchell Hedges loved a big fish story. Literally. He was a wealthy man who spent his time pursuing the hobby of deep-sea fishing and capitalizing on his hobby by selling stories about his supposed adventures. The fish that got away in his stories which he published in articles and books, were always giant, man-eating monsters, and Hearst newspapers paid him to spin his yarns. Soon his tales turned to fantastical pseudo-archaeological claims. He claimed to have discovered tribes uncontacted by civilization, to have found unknown continents, and to have been the first to explore the ruins of amazing lost civilizations. In 1927, he claimed to have been assaulted and robbed of some important anthropological artifacts, including papers and shrunken heads. But the Daily Express newspaper exposed this claim as a hoax. Mitchell Hedges then tried to sue the newspaper for libel the next year, but he lost the suit and under cross-examination was revealed to be something of an imposter when it came to his claims as an explorer. In his 1931 book, Land of Wonder and Fear, he capitalized on these dubious claims, such as having discovered the Mayan city of Lubantun in British Honduras. Though archaeologists and European residents of the area protested that the ruins he had visited by motor car had been well known for a long time. A few years after buying the Bernie Crystal Skull in 1943, and immediately mythologizing it with claims that it was 2,000 years old, far older than Boban had ever claimed his quote-unquote Aztec skull to be, he had changed his story and begun claiming that he had discovered it himself in the 1930s. Within another five years, he published a new book, Danger My Ally, in which he embellished the story of his crystal skull even further claiming that it was 3,600 years old and that somehow he knew it had been used by a Mayan high priest for some occult ritual. When the high priest willed death, he wrote, with the help of the skull, death inevitably followed. It has been described as the embodiment of evil. Thus, the Mitchell Hedges skull came to be called the Skull of Doom which of course would have been a better name for an Indiana Jones film if they hadn't already made Temple of Doom. It seems possible that Mitchell Hedges' fictionalizing of the Crystal Skull's paranormal powers was inspired by a piece of short fiction published in 1936 called The Crystal Skull. In this story, the author Jack McLaren tells the story of a stolen Crystal Skull 
that gives its wielder some kind of psychic powers. Whether Mitchell Hedges read that story or dreamed up his tall tales on his own, this was just the beginning of the claims of supernatural or occult powers that would eventually surround the Mitchell Hedges skull. The majority of the paranormal claims made about the Mitchell Hedges skull and crystal skulls generally were made after Anna Mitchell Hedges had inherited the object. Like her adopted father before her, she changed the story of where the skull had come from, likely in an effort to provide some more credible provenance. Now she claimed that it was not Frederick Mitchell Hedges who found it, but rather that she had found it herself when she accompanied him on a certain expedition to the lost Mayan city of Lubantun. And in order to account for the well-documented fact that her adopted father had bought the crystal skull from London art dealer Sidney Burney, she later claimed that he had borrowed money from Burney and left the skull as security, that he'd merely put the skull in hock until he could redeem it. But of course, it had been auctioned at Sotheby's, not bought directly back from Burney. And a letter about the skull from Burney to the American Museum of Natural History indicates that it had been in Burney's possession for a full decade before it was sold at Sotheby's. More than this, Anna Mitchell Hedge's story about finding the skull continually changed. She found it in 1924, or was it 1926, or 27, or 28? She remembered being lowered down into a cave, or was it the interior of a pyramid? Or rather, she had climbed to the top of the pyramid and found it under the stones of a fallen altar. And after all, eventually, she recalled that it had been her birthday when she discovered it. Odd that this would slip her mind for so long. Since other archaeologists who were at the Lubantun site in 1927 and 1928 asserted that neither Frederick nor Anna Mitchell Hedges were there at the time, she eventually decided that it must have been 1924, making her only 17 years old. The further problem here is that Frederick Mitchell Hedges wrote extensively about his expeditions, and he did not mention bringing a 17-year-old daughter with him. He wrote about other women he brought, though. For example, he writes about his companion and the bankroller of his expeditions, Lady Richmond Brown, and he even mentions that his secretary, Jane, traveled with him. He even goes into great detail about bringing a pet monkey named Michael along, who became ill on the expedition and whom he had to shoot to put out of his misery, burying him with all the ceremony of a loved one. As scholar Jane McLaren Walsh points out, it is certainly strange that he would devote more time to his secretary and his pet monkey than to his own teenage daughter in recording the events of the expedition, especially if it were she who had discovered a life-size crystal skull on her birthday. That, it seems, would certainly have made it into the book. Instead, in Danger My Ally, Frederick Mitchell Hedges is coy about where and when he supposedly found the skull, saying only, how it came into my possession, I have reason for not revealing. Once Anna had acquired the coveted Mitchell Hedges skull, 
it wasn't long before some former associate of her father came around to encourage her to profit from it. Specifically, Frank Dorland, an art dealer from San Francisco, convinced her that he could, quote, launch a program about the skull, end quote, that would raise its worth and drive up its potential price. Dorland had done this before for Anna's father. In 1953, six years before his death, Frederick Mitchell Hedges had purchased a religious icon that was likely one of many copies of a famed icon, the Black Virgin of Kazan. With Dorland's help, though, Mitchell Hedges had been able to promote his icon as the original Kazan icon, lost in 1904. Failing that, he asserted that it was at least a certain 16th century copy of the original, the Fatima image, which was lost in 1917 and was just as sought after. Dorland continued his promotion of the Mitchell Hedges icon for years after Frederick's death, managing to get it exhibited in New York's World Trade Fair in 1964. By that time, he had also contracted with Anna Mitchell Hedges to promote the Crystal Skull, and he did so by amplifying the idea that it was a supernatural object. He took to calling it the Skull of Divine Mystery, the Skull of Knowledge, and the God's Head Skull. In documents sent to the director of the Museum of the American Indian, it was claimed that the skull could protect against the evil eye, that it, quote, carries protection from heaven, end quote, and, quote, defeats all evils of witchcraft, end quote, claiming that it wielded, quote, benevolent divine magic dealing with heaven and angelic forces, end quote. The fingerprints of Dorland's marketing of the skull seem apparent here, and after this, his quote-unquote program seemed focused on getting books published that further mythologized the crystal skull as a talisman of occult power. In 1970, a book appeared called Phrenology, about the pseudoscience of studying the bumps on people's skulls in order to determine their personality traits. But the book was more than a simple phrenology manual. It was written by Sybil Leake, a self-proclaimed psychic medium and probably the best-known representative of witchcraft in England. She wrote some 60 books in her lifetime on astrology, numerology, faith healing, reincarnation, etc. And the cover of her book on phrenology pictured the Mitchell Hedges skull. In it, she made strong claims that the skull was not actually Mesoamerican, but had been carried to the New World by, and maybe you can guess who, that's right, the Knights Templar. After this book's publication, Anna Mitchell Hedges was upset with Dorland, not so much about the claims Leek made in it, but rather that the English witch said the skull belonged to Frank Dorland. In order to pacify her, Dorland arranged for another book to be published, by a novelist named Richard Garvin. This 1973 book, with the kind of eye-catching occult cover art that grabbed readers' attention in those years, was called The Crystal Skull. And in it, it was suggested that the skull originated in Atlantis, that it was evil, that it brought death to those who would not revere it and could be used as a terrible weapon in the wrong hands.
So we see that the mythologizing of crystal skulls as objects of occult power started with the yarn spinner Frederick Mitchell Hedges, and continued after his death with his adopted daughter, and with Frank Dorland, his old partner in marketing dubious artifacts. From the 1970s onward, it is possible to trace all outlandish paranormal claims about crystal skulls, including their ability to hypnotize and impart knowledge when one looks into their eyes, as depicted in the Indiana Jones film, back to these efforts at marketing an artifact that previously had only been viewed as a ritual object, if not as a fraud. In the book that Frank Dorland commissioned, the author insinuated that archaeologists dismissed it and scientists refused to study it, quote, because they cannot come to grips with the fact that there may be a knowledge demonstrated here which is beyond our civilized comprehension, end quote. And this, as usual, is the ultimate joke. As I have argued before, such claims just show a fundamental lack of understanding of the scholarly community and academic study in publishing. As a scientifically verifiable discovery of something seemingly supernatural would be sought after, it would mean fame, which would mean funding. And in fact, my principal source for this episode, the anthropologist Jane McLaren Walsh, a Smithsonian archivist, has done more than dig up all the history of the crystal skulls from Boban to Mitchell Hedges. She has also subjected the Mitchell Hedges skull to the scientific testing that it was long claimed scientists refused to conduct. What she found was that, indeed, the Mitchell Hedges skull appeared to be an exact copy of the Boban skull in its dimensions, but that the anatomical details of its eye sockets, nasal cavity, teeth, and jaw were more correct, which leads to the conclusion that a later forger was attempting to capitalize on the Boban skull while also improving on its workmanship. Using ultraviolet light, computerized tomography, and scanning electron microscopy, Walsh confirmed that the Mitchell Hedges skull showed signs of having been carved with high-speed wheeled rotary carving using diamond-coated hard metal tools that have only been available in modern times. Thus, the Mitchell Hedges skull was likely forged sometime in the 1930s before it came into Sidney Burney's possession. Likewise, similar testing was conducted on the Boban skull that demonstrated it too had been carved using wheeled rotary technology that would have been in use in the 19th century. Considering this evidence, it is safe to dismiss all the crystal skulls as forged artifacts, and all the claims made about their provenance and paranormal powers as nothing but hoaxes. first blush, one might think that these hoax artifacts are a ridiculous MacGuffin for Indiana Jones to quest after, since as an archaeologist in the 1950s, when that film was set, he likely would not have given much credence to the stories of Crystal Skulls. But of course, if we were to judge his character based on the real-life authenticity of the objects he searches for, then the notion that he and his father believed the Holy Grail was a real object makes them seem just as ridiculous. Based on the idea that he thought the literary invention of the Holy Grail might have been real, 
and that he was obsessed with the Mitchell Hedges skull, we might begin to view Indy as a credulous dupe and a pseudo-archaeologist. But we must remember that these are action-adventure films with science fiction fantasy elements, and for such a story, the Crystal Skulls are kind of perfect MacGuffins to weave into a story about the search for a lost city of gold founded by ancient aliens. Even though the execution wasn't great, I suppose I see what they were going for and can't fault them for trying. Interestingly, there is one more connection between the story of the Crystal Skulls and the Indiana Jones films. The golden idol that Indy snatches from a booby-trapped ruin in South America in Raiders of the Lost Ark is apparently modeled after a statuette of the goddess Tlazolteotl on display at the Dumbarton Oaks Museum in Washington, D.C. The provenance of this statuette was questionable, and because images of this deity do not typically depict her in a squatting position giving birth, as is the case with this piece, some suggestions of its inauthenticity have arisen. As it turns out, Eugene Boban played a significant part in the original acquisition of this piece, and when Jane McLaren Walsh, who was piecing together Boban's frauds more than a hundred years later, analyzed the statuette, she again discovered evidence of modern rotary lapidary tools. Thus, it seems more than one hoax artifact cooked up by the swindler Eugene Boban may have ended up inspiring the MacGuffins that famous archaeologist Indiana Jones risks his very life seeking out. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Check out the blog post for this episode, which should go up on historicalblindness.com sometime before the next episode, for a transcript, related imagery, and citations for further reading, especially the impressive work of Jane McLaren Walsh, whose scholarship on this topic provided the bulk of what I've presented here. As always, thanks go out to my partner patrons, Diane Lane, Joe Escott, Sean Munger, Devlin Hoff, Michael Markham, Mitchell Shuttler, Jessica Reeves, Fred from Colorado, Robin Naggett, Rebecca, Don Mundus, Eunice Allen Bradley, Juliet O'Connor, Jonathan Williams, Joshua Luddington, Logan Houlihan, Lily Powers, Lonnie Coffer, Ralph Fenn, Ama, Lee Holland, Kevin Osborne, Ed Shockley, and Benny Slater. I often wonder how much money I could make just by writing a pseudo-historical occult book like the ones I've recently talked about that appeared in the 70s. But then I remember you patrons and your respect and admiration for my honesty and I realize I can't betray my principles like that. I sure think I could dream up a doozy and rake in some cash though. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows, like The Constant and The Conspirators. The wannabe Indiana Jones music in this episode is called Adventure Theme and was licensed commercially through Pond5. Some music on this episode is copyright Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music is by Kai Engel, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. 
You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or on PayPal. Find those links in the show notes or find me on Venmo at Historical Blindness. Until next time, when next you visit a museum, remember, even the objects displayed there and asserted to be of a certain age and origin aren't always as authentic as is claimed. <laughs>